Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Benny Facconi. First of all, there's a big battle that's shaping up, and it's between the music publishers and Spotify. Basically, anybody that gets royalties from Spotify knows that publishing royalties are about a tenth of what normal mechanical royalties are. So in other words, if the mechanical royalty is 0.007, then what you're getting from the publishing royalty is 0.0007. So it's hardly anything. Publishers are really upset about that, but they're more upset about another factor, and that's that many times publishers and songwriters aren't getting paid at all, even though the songs are being played. And the reason for that, according to Spotify, is the fact they don't have enough information in order to pay them. Now, the publishers are actually saying, oh, we think you guys have plenty of information and know how to do it. You're just not paying us on purpose. So the National Music Publishers Association, or NMPA, basically filing a big, big lawsuit, as well as many music publishers. So right now there's $365 million worth of lawsuits from publishers against Spotify, and that looks like it's just the beginning. Now, what do the publishers want? They want equity, just like the major labels got. The majors own 18% of Spotify. And, of course, the publishers own zero right now, and they don't like that. Now, the big problem here is Spotify hasn't been making any money. They've never made dime one. And the only way they can make money is if they go public one way or the other. And it looked like that was going to happen this year. It may not now because of these lawsuits. Now, there's two big issues here. One is if the publishers actually get equity and they go public, so all of a sudden there's a windfall in profits, who gets that money? The major labels are going to get a lot of dough. But where do you think it's going to go? It's not going to go to the artist. It'll go all to the bottom line. They will not get any royalties or they'll get a very, very little piece of the royalty pie. And the publishers will probably do the same thing. So it's not helping the average songwriter, the average artist. So that's one of the big problems. The second big problem, maybe it's even bigger, is the fact that if this pressure keeps on being put on Spotify, wait and see, Spotify isn't going to be around because they're not making money now. And if they get any more pressure, they're certainly not going to make more money in the future, which means that they're not going to be able to go public, which means that they're not going to get any more investment. And guess what? We're down to a world of just Apple, Amazon, and Google. Now, Apple, Amazon, and Google have deep enough pockets that they can actually stand up against any threat from the music business, and they'll happily do that. But do you think that's actually going to be good for the music business? No, it probably isn't. So this is one of those situations where an organization is trying to do the right thing, especially for its stockholders, but may wind up killing the golden goose. So keep a lookout for this because it's kind of ominous and I'm not so sure that it's actually going to work out to anybody's benefit. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, if that wasn't enough bad news, we have some bad news in the audio tube world as well. Mike Matthews, who owns New Sensor Corporation, which is the importer or actually the manufacturer for Sovtech tubes, 
is actually being harassed by the Russian government. Softec tubes are manufactured in Russia from a company that Mike Matthews bought in the early 90s called Expo Pol. And right now they're responsible for 70% of all audio tubes that are being used in the world. Now, yes, there's other places that you can get them from. You can get them from China, you can get them from Yugoslavia. But that being said, most people do like the sound of these Russian tubes. And that's what's used in a lot of audio gear these days. So what's happening over there? Well, the first thing that happened was the factory started to get harassed. And it was harassed by first the electricity going off right in the middle of the workday. So that was bad news. The next thing that happened was mysteriously the clean room that you need to make tubes was contaminated. Okay, that's bad news. And then finally what started to happen was thugs would hang around the factory and threaten all the workers. Okay, so that didn't work. Here's the next thing that happened. All of a sudden, there were these Russian companies that were altering documents like deeds that were saying that Mike Matthews didn't actually own the factory. And guess what? A company owned by the KGB or actually the FSB, which is the new version of the KGB, definitely owned it. Now, Matthews has managed to keep control of his factory so far, but now the FSB is basically saying, well, we think we're going to take this factory for national security reasons. So obviously, this is not a good turn of events. One of the things that makes you think is, well, what's going to happen if the FSB takes over the factory? Does that mean they're going to actually still continue to make tubes? Are they going to know how to sell tubes, <laughs> even if they do continue to make them? Are they going to change something? Because right now, everybody kind of likes the way they sound. Will they change something? Will they be able to manage a factory? And Russians aren't known for being good at that. So this is, again, a very ominous turn. And we'll see what happens in the future. But keep your eye on that as well. My guest today is 17-time Grammy winner Benny Facconi. Benny just moved his base of operations from a commercial studio into his home. While that's not that unusual, the fact of the matter is he has a large console and a host of outboard gear, so things got pretty complex very fast. It's an interesting story to hear exactly what he's gone through in order to get his studio going, though, so I spoke with him via phone from his home studio in Thousand Oaks, California. You had a really nice studio, and now you decided to move into your house. So what brought that on? Well, if we go a little further back than just then, um, coming from the studio old school world, um, I got spoiled, unfortunately, then, you know, going to home studios and all these things. But when I was forced to have my own studio, my first one was down in, in Hollywood. As you know, you were there a few times. Um, and when I built it, uh, I knocked down a wall to give more space, but I was kind of lucky because the room was weird. It was a weird shape. So all I did was I built a uh, fiberglass at the time, one of the, the 902 fiberglass panels and just put them in certain spots to kind of get rid of some of the, the pinging and some of the, um, um, the acoustical, you know, things that was going on. So I kind of got lucky with that. And then when I moved to this last studio, that who the guy that built it before me kind of made it into a designated studio. Um, although I, I I did a lot of treatments to it, it was kind of built in a in a angled kind of shaped room. But when I came here and I was going to build 
my room, uh, I was going to give it a little weird shape, but because of where I'm building it, it's hard to um, to kind of make it weird angles. But asking for advice, um, some people say, you know, it's better to make a rectangle and then start from there, see what's going on, and then fix it from where you've got. So when I built the room, it was a, um, a, a rectangle room, and uh, the pinging that was going on and the reflections were kind of scary. So this was the first time that I really had to deal with the acoustics of the room, of, of the bouncing between walls. So does that answer your question? <laughs> well, no, not exactly. So you had another studio, and that was already built, and you were there for, what, four or five years. So what? Well, more like seven. Oh, it was seven? Okay. Why did you decide to move into your house then? Well, uh, I think it's the downsizing that, um, I, I don't know, you know, I think it's just the nature of the day, uh, the, the having my own studio and having the overhead just wasn't worth it anymore because I'm, uh, everybody is mixing on, I mean, uh, recording on their own and they, um, they just send me files and I had this big tracking room that was actually kind of good. We tweaked it out where, uh, you know, we were tracking um, Daryl Hall, Britney Spears, and um, uh, John Fogarty and all these, these fun things here and there. But it was so rare and far and few in between because everybody has their own either home studio or their living room or bedroom or whatever. It just wasn't worth the overhead. Um, and 90% of the time I was mixing anyway. So it just became, you know... Um, I kind of guess I came into the into the modern world of uh, just going at home, at ho- doing it at home, and um, and you know getting rid of my overheads. But um, because, like I said, going back to I come from that studio and all that, I was I was about to just do it in my living room and say, "Oh heck with it," you know, I don't care about the acoustics. Uh, I've got my analog console. I'll mix low and whatever. I don't care what the acoustic sounds like, but I just couldn't do it. So that hence started the whole process of the acoustics and and that whole stuff and and building a whole special room. So I kind of um, went a little overboard because of what I'm used to. I, I just couldn't just mix in a room that wasn't acoustically treated. Yeah, it's different for you because you're not mixing in the box either. You have a big Trident console. And that's your style. That's yeah. what you do. You still stay, you know, on the console when you're mixing. So it's more important. Actually, you have to find a place that accommodates that, first of all. Oh, yeah. And that's really a pain in the ass. <laughs> to accommodate an 11-foot um, uh, console, you know, I can't, I can't just do it anywhere. But it's not It's not only so much about that. That's just more like the, um, the, um, the aesthetics of it, the, the size. But what's really important to me is the bottom end and that I, what I hear in the room is actually true. Cause when you go into a room and you listen to something, you know, mixing wise, the bottom end, you don't know if it's right or wrong. And I just, I want to make sure what I hear in the room, when I take it out, it sounds better rather than different or too much bottom end or not enough bottom end. And a lot of people that are mixing really low, the acoustics don't matter as much, but then I just don't know what kind of um, um, bottom end and top end that I have. So, um, you know, again, coming from old school, that was really important to know the whole uh, 
spectrum of the frequencies of, between the top end and bottom end. So, um, hence, yes, that that that's more of a pain in the ass rather than the size of it. Even though uh, I do enjoy more analog mixing and having my hands on the fader, definitely. But you do some stuff in the box still, though, right? I mean, not the entire mix, but there are certain things. Oh yeah, I mean, it's still the console, the analog console. If it's not a duality or something like that, it's still limited to um, how much I can do. But the 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 depth and the openness of a console just can't beat that. So that's why I still like the console it's, itself. Just and I, my console is modified where it'll go down to 20 hertz, and the 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 perspective of it and the width. Like if you hear a a mix in the box, it's almost like it's at nine o'clock and three o'clock, the, the panning as opposed to full 180 degrees. Um, so that's, that's the difference for me um, between in the box. But I do, I do, you know, plugins in the box, a lot of uh, effects kind of plugins, not so much EQs, um, some compressors, but so I'm kind of 50, 50, but I do do all my moves and rides on the console. What was the hardest thing, do you think, making the transition going from your previous studio to a brand new place in your house? Man, you know, that's a good question because I've been working on this room for two months now and I still haven't powered up because I know um, until it's ready that I don't want to hear it because of the acoustics of the room. So, um, that's one thing I'm, I'm afraid to listen, but it'll probably take me a couple of months to get used to it. Just like the last studio did coming from, you know, the Conways and all those other places. When you walk in, you know what you got, even though the rooms sound different from one studio to another, but man, when you have your home studio, um, it's really a, a, a learning process, uh, how it sounds. And that's what I'm going to have to do with this room next week when I, I i have all the acoustical panels put up then i'm i'm you know teaching old dog new tricks i guess is a saying i'm just going to turn it on and start listening and getting used to it um i guess you know i could jump into it but it's a, it's a learning curve it's going to take me a while to figure out what it sounds like because even though it's everything is exactly the same it's not going to sound the same now you have an 11 foot console was that difficult getting in? <laughs> well, um, in the last place, I had to tear down a big room, a, a wall, so that the angle could turn of coming outside the control room, kind of turning and then going outside the door. So I had to knock down a big wall. And then um, coming to the house, um, I had a, my side door going into, I guess, my garage. It was one one panel door. Uh, I turned it into a French door because it was too small. And I had to knock out about four more feet of walls. So the angle of the console could fit in. So I had about, let's see, maybe three, six, about 10 foot. I, um, open wall that I had to cut on the side of my house. <laughs> yeah, it was a pain. I was going to say, luckily, um, contractors to them, it's no big deal that they, they can, they can bang out a wall and, put it back up in no time to them. It's no problem. But for me, it's like freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. It would be traumatic for me too. I, I think. Well, <laughs> okay. So you said you had a 
knock out a wall or a portion of a wall to get the console in your old place. How about getting it out? What did you do? Same thing. I had to, I had to knock out that same wall. Um, see when I came in, I had movers do it. That's the other thing. You just, I just couldn't move it myself. I literally had to, I've got 72 modules. I had to pull them all out one by one and carry those separately, have a moving company come and, and take the console just like uh, they would a piano or anything else and basically see them, you know, put it on its side and put the harness in and wheel it out kind of a thing. And um, when we brought it from my old space in Hollywood, which was a direct out from the room to the door, it was no problem because just one straight shot. This, uh, this last place before I came to the house, um, the guy came and measured and he said, Oh, that the, the walls are, the, the, the ceilings are high enough so we can just put a stand it up on its side. Uh, because what happens is when you, we brought it in, it had to turn 90 degrees to go through the uh, control room door. Um, and there was a wall there of another existing, um, room. So, uh, kind of said, okay, no problem. The day that uh, they came to move, they lifted it up and it was off by one inch. Oh. It would not go all the way up. You know, so you have to put it on it. It's, it's, um, it's on the top and kind of swerve it, turn it and then go from left, you know, turn it, um, 90 degrees and then go straight into the door. But because we couldn't do that, um, we either had to knock out the ceiling to, to about two inches or knock out a wall. We just chose to knock, knock out a wall. So when I was taking the console back out, I knew I had to do the same thing, but this time I was prepared because I knew how, how big uh, a, a wall that I had to knock out. Wow. So it, it wasn't so bad. It was just, yeah, it was just the construction and deconstruction of the place. That was, that was tough. So basically you knocked out two walls. <laughs> one at the old place and one at the new to make this happen. Right. Well, well yeah, this one coming into my house, it was the side door. And what it is on the side, it kind of comes at an angle. And 11 feet is pretty big when you have to fit it at an angle. So you need like 20 feet of of space to go sideways. It's, it's, it's really weird. Um, but even, even when I opened up the wall thinking I had enough space to bring it in here. When they came, we had to knock out about two more feet of wall. So I had the construction guy stay just in case because the, um, the movers charge um, like 200 bucks an hour. So <laughs> you have to take cost into consideration when you do this stuff and just kind of uh, weigh the options. What's cheaper? Wow. Wow. How long did it take you to actually get it up and running? I know that you haven't done any sessions or anything, but I know you've also proofed the console to make sure it works. So how long did it take you to get that going? Well, um, we, I figured building the room was going to take about a month, but it took about uh, a month and a half. Um, but um, as soon as we, uh, I had an electrician, or, or this girl who's who's great at she disconnects and reconnects. There's so much cabling and stuff to to deal with that I had to I had her come and 
disconnect everything. And obviously she marked where everything goes, which took her about four hours to disconnect. And then when I, when we moved everything in, she came maybe three days later. Um, and it took her about nine hours to reconnect everything. The best process isn't that bad. It's just coordinating and getting the movers, the, the, the electrical stuff happening and all that stuff. So it's, um, it's more um, manual labor than it is anything else. And just, you know, turning off the computer, bringing your Pro Tools um, drives and all that stuff is a little more complicated. Well, let's talk about electrical for a second because you had to put a new service in, right? Well, I, yeah, I wanted to be sure. Well, first of all, with a console and all, you have to... Uh, I didn't want to plug it into the, the house system and start getting buzzes. Or if somebody turns on a hairdryer or a vacuum cleaner, all of a sudden I can't work because I got a hum, a ground hum from that. So yeah, just like my old studio, I had clean power brought in. So I had a, a complete separate circuit and um, I have a transformer that it goes through for clean power. So when I came here and I turned everything on, I I went full blast, and on my monitor side, where I have all my effects returns, it was really quiet. It kind of freaked me out because I thought, wow, um, it's so quiet. It's it's a lot more quiet than even the last two studios that I thought that maybe there was something wrong uh, with my um, monitor side. <laughs> but because this clean power is so, it literally is only about 10 feet away from the, the panel, the, it's so clean that I, I don't have any buzzes, any hisses, nothing. And it's, it, it was just quiet. Wow. My last two studios, I had to, I had to bring clean power in also, but luckily it was already there. I just kind of had to tap into it and bring it in. But here I had to do a whole new, all new lines. Same thing with the AC where you never think about, you know, if you make a room, um, if you tap into the AC, into the house, then what happens is you have to you have to turn the AC on for the whole house just so you can cool off your room that you're going to be working in five, six, ten hours a day. So it it makes more sense to have a separate AC unit. And I chose one of those mini split systems where you know, like they're having condos and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But then I got worried because if you put one of those things in the room when you turn it on one of those big units that's just stuffed on the wall. I didn't want, um, I didn't want all that, um, that, um, um, fan noise coming on. So, um, I kind of upgraded still the mini split system, but it's with ducks. So it's a lot more quiet. Mm. I've seen the mini split work so. in a couple of studios without that, but I'm sure it's better with the ducting and, and it probably feels better too. You know, it is. Oh, it's it's so much quiet. You don't really hear it. Um, so for that, I'm kind of glad I did it that way rather than, you know, when you turn it on, one of those systems that you put on the wall in the room, it's basically like a, a, a window fan, almost the same thing, maybe not as loud. And then you've got that, um, um, it, it just depending on, you know, if you make it really um, high, uh, high level, you really hear it um, blowing quite a bit. But with this, I don't hear it at all. My only thing is after I put it in that I realized is that because, well, getting into, you know, the construction of the room, I wanted to make it very 
um, airtight. And if I wanted to work at two o'clock in the morning in my home, I didn't want to disturb anybody in the house. So I wanted to make it very um, insulated. Um, so that's why I choose I chose certain materials that I put in. But what happens is when you put the AC, the, like in the house, you have an air intake where it kind of recirculates. In here, I never put one in because one of those mini split systems, it, it usually it doesn't have an air intake because yeah, in the house you are, you have cracks in the windows and the doors, so there's always some kind of circulation going through. But because in this room it's so airtight that um, the AC isn't as efficient because it, there's no it's just recirculating air all the time. So now I have to think about how to put in an air intake um, vent. All these little things that you don't think about until you start doing it and you go, oh, crap, you know, this happens if you to fight on to this. So there's all little like repercussions to the choices you make. How about the acoustics? Did you have a designer or did you do it yourself? Well, I did it myself, but I, I always ask people, um, one of my favorite go-to guys is Ben O'May. He's the head tech over at Bernie Grumman. He always uh, gives me really good suggestions. And my first room, which was about 12 years ago over in Hollywood, um, the things that we would do was all, you know, the fiberglass. And I would make panels and put this 902 fiberglass in the panels and hang them up. But what that does is it makes the room tight. Um, and it does it, the reflections of the sounds are, are kind of, uh, contained, but it makes the room dark. Yeah. So, um, so this time oh, I asked them and, you know, uh, they're always learning everything new about acoustics, I guess. And, uh, so I talked to them and now the things that I guess this isn't, um, you know, secret that they do, but the, now everybody uses polyfill which is, uh, I guess, similar to pillow stuffing. So when they make panels with that, and what happens is it, it controls the acoustics just like fiberglass does, but it doesn't make it dark sounding. So it just kind of keeps it alive and without um, messing with the acoustics, if that makes sense. Did you use any 702 or anything then? Did you use any fiberglass? You know, because of the cost, and I didn't want to throw all my existing stuff away, I did. I built about 20 panels um, that in my first room I put as my my fake ceiling. So I redid, I did the same thing, and I put the fiberglass um, panels. And but so that's basically um, the majority of the fiberglass that I used because they were already built. Um, and for cost purposes, it, 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 polyfill isn't cheap. So I used um, the ceiling with the 902 and my, my sides, my side walls, um, I made panels and I had the carpenter make them kind of specifically for what I wanted. They're, they're not flat. They're more rounded panels. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot more fun. I learned a lot about upholstering. <laughs> <laughs> and each one took a, a couple of hours to do. But uh, so I have that on the sides. So it's almost like my side walls have these roundness to it. So it's not only um, 
it's not only uh, about um, um, trying to think of the right words. Uh, it, it's it also acts as a diffusion for the frequencies because it's round as opposed to flat panels. Yeah. Right. 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 And again, you know, uh, next week I'm going to fire it up and I'm going to see where I'm at. But I, I, you know, when you walk into a room, you know, you you can already hear certain problems. So before I want to hear it, I want to fix those problems and see where I, you know, where to go from there. So that's basically what I'm doing. And for my back wall, I'm keeping what I had in the last two studios, which is basically um, I bought this big theatrical dual pane, heavy thick curtain that I hang up in my back wall. And that seems to help the, the bass trap without spending a lot of money and building a bass trap. Mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a recording space in case you need to? I don't. Um, I've got like little, um, um, a corridor walking from my house to, to the studio that down the road, I can probably, uh, close off and make that into like a small little amp or vocal booth. But I think, the day of um, doing drums at my place or that kind of stuff, it's not worth it. You know, to, for the amount of time, usually when, if, if you're doing a project, you do drums for maybe a day. Um, the setup, the, the getting drum sounds and, and, and not getting them as good as you would as if you go to a really good studio, it's just not worth it. So if somebody wants me to record drums or that kind of stuff, I'd rather go somewhere else and eventually I'll have a little space for vocals and the little things that the room isn't as important as it would if you're doing strings or drums or that kind of stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That seems to be the way that everyone is doing it anymore, unless you have a lot of dough and you know you're going to be tracking all the time, you know, if you're an artist or something. But, you know, people don't realize how important a room is, especially for drums. You know, if you go bass DI, no big deal, obviously. What's important is, you know, your your mix room. But for drums, um, you know, doing it in a living room, it's, it, you know, that mentality of just putting a mic in front of something and it'll sound good, um, it, it really is, is not the right way. It's It's really... You know, the room is what cre- creates that instrument to sound good or not. You can have the most amazing drum kit and the most amazing mics, but if that room doesn't give it a good sound, you kind of break that chain of, you know, a good recording. Since you were changing so much and that it's a new room and you're basically rebuilding everything, did you decide to do anything equipment-wise or upgrade anything while you're doing this? No, no, I'm keeping everything the same. Uh, You know, that's the great thing about having the analog knock on wood is that there's no need to upgrade because it always sounds good. Uh, I think today, you know, the Pro Tools are making it better and better from obviously from 8 to 10 and now to 12, which I, I haven't gone to 12 or even 11. And I heard that 12 supposedly sounds really good, especially if you go with the new hardware. Um, it makes everything sound better, but b- because I have the analog, it doesn't matter to me because what matters is the analog gear and it always makes it sound good. I just use the pro tools. as kind of like a tape machine. Do you mix back the pro tools? I do. I do mix back, back the pro tools. I wish I, 
I had analog to mix back to, but it, it's become too expensive. People don't um, don't want to spend the money, or it, it gets too complicated, too hard to have tape machines. And sometimes it does sound better on Pro Tools. I, I got to admit, um, it's a different sound. Um, but what I'm working on now is trying to get another rig to print back to, rather than just pr- print, printing back to the same session. Ah, uh, I see. That's what all the mastering guys do. Yeah, yeah. They 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 they, they record onto their their systems. Yeah, but um, but here, you know, when they send me, and a lot of people still still record in forty four one, which, you know, to me compared to ninety six, ninety six sounds so much better. Um, I don't know why. I guess they they think it doesn't, but um, then I'm stuck to um, printing the mix back onto forty four one. If I had my own system, I could have. I can mix everything back down to to ninety six, which to me sounds better. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's the main reason why I want to separate. But um, either from um, you know just never had the time or 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 the well, you know it costs or whatever. I haven't really done that yet. But that's going to be the next thing as soon as I get situated in this room. So most of what you do is in the Latin realm. How much has that changed? The Latin world has changed and um, evolved or disevolved, whatever you want to say, in the last, um, the, the last few years. Uh, a lot has happened. And I, I believe it or not, I don't do as much. I, I do a lot of independent Latin stuff, which is what I like to do usually. Sometimes, you know, you don't get the greatest of stuff because of the budget. Um, but there's this reggaeton stuff that's happening in Mexico in the last couple of years that um, everybody's doing that this reggaeton style of music in, in Colombia. That's where it's all coming from. Um, and, you know, they do it at their house. They do it. Everything is all through computers, Fruity Loops or whatever they use now. So um, it, it's gotten it, it's like the uh, hip hop um here in you know 20, 20, 25 years ago, whenever it was just the beginning of that, where they were just using all these little uh, samples and stuff like that. So I don't get as much work from, from Latin music. The other thing that's happened is, believe it or not, Mexico you know has money. They're they're not uh, the poor country that um, America thinks they are, and and they were coming up here because of the musicians, because of the studios, because of uh, the quality that they were getting up here. But it also cost them money. And when the peso went up to, at a, at a, a point, it was at 22 pesos to the dollar. Now it's back down to 17. It used to be about 12 or 14. Um, people and, and wealthy people started recording their own, uh, uh, building their own studios. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, I've been to a few of them in the beginning of the year. I went to one in a couple in January and one in um, in March and did some stuff. And you walk in and it's like gorgeous. It's beautiful. They, you know, a lot of them have dualities and you know the typical um, new stuff of today. And some even had some great old equipment like APIs and even Fairchilds. But then you listen to the acoustics of the room. And it's horrible uh, because they they don't understand what a studio should really sound like. They know what it should look like. Hmm. And 
they only charge 300 bucks a day. Wow. Including an engineer. <laughs> so you can't compete with that and labels and everybody else. They're staying down there and they're doing that. So it's funny because in the last couple of years, you know, I did uh, some Britney stuff, Britney Spears and Daryl Hall. And, um, and now I'm doing some uh, Richard Carpenter. So it's kind of, um, I don't know if it's, the world is trying to tell me something, but it's coming back to what I used to do back in the 80s. So it's kind of like uh, maybe the cycle of uh, life is starting to close in. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I've watched your career trajectory I guess Mana was the one that really got you into that whole Latin thing when you did a big hit with it, or hits, mm-hmm. I should say. Well, yeah, it was kind of Mana. I'm not sure if it was Mana or Luis Miguel. Those those were the two big ones that, um, yeah, that um, back then, you know, everybody they had to they had to go to a studio and they had to use you you needed a budget. It, it was um, um, I was lucky, you know, I think because yeah. What got got those people that nobody knew? I didn't even know who they who they were. But um, you know, I've never wanted to say no, so I was able to be there and record with them. And um, you know, part of a team that uh, I think you know, was a great composer and um, great songs. And yeah, uh, that's how that's how my name got started in the Latin world for sure. Between the two of them, I think uh, it, it, it's it's it was a real irony because. Um, Manau was more of what I guess down in Mexico considered a rock band, and Luis Miguel was more like a um, um, ballad, uh, Frank Sinatra kind of, um, you know, um, orchestral kind of stuff. So nobody ever really knew what I did because some people go, "Oh, that guy's good for rock stuff. He's 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 probably no good for the for the other stuff." And then. Yeah, the people who hear the Mana stuff, they go, oh, man, this guy, you know, he doesn't know how to do strings. He only knows how to do guitars and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so they, they try and p- pigeonhole you. And I think I was lucky that I wasn't pigeonholed. That's probably why I got to do a lot of different things. Yeah, you did a lot of different Latin music as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all over the place. It, it was That was the fun thing that, um, you know, until... Um, <laughs> You get the singers or whatever on there. It was basically anything from rock to, um, you know, orchestral. Went to Abbey Road and do strings and the whole thing. So uh, I couldn't. I can't complain. It, it was. It wasn't straight ahead what you think. Um, you know, Latin music is. So we treated it as American music or English music until the vocals got put on, and then oh, we're doing Latin stuff. Before I let you go, there's one story that I, I want to hear from you, and that's when you were working with Julio and you got sick. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that that had nothing to do with the recording part of it. Um, we were doing with, with this guy Robbie Dracorosa, who we did a lot of Ricky Martin stuff, and, uh, uh, and you know, an amazing artist in his own right, and and singer and all that. But um, um, he's very alternative type of stuff, so. Julio wanted to do something different on this record. Um, so we recorded some of the stuff here. Uh, he, uh, um, it was the first time we used a Pro Tools guy. I didn't even know what, what I knew what Pro Tools was, but I didn't even know how to create a, a new track. That's how new Pro Tools was. But he had this demo that he loved 
the drummer and the guitar player that was on it that we that Julio uh, he liked the songs and he wanted to keep the vibe of the demo, so he gave um, uh, this um, uh, Pro Tools operator the um, the files and because they, the demo wasn't recorded with click, so we were going to put orchestra and this whole thing on it. So he gave it to the guy and he brought it back and he totally quantized the crap out of it, you know, and he was so proud of how, how great and tight it sounded. And you listen to it and the whole vibe is gone. Hmm. Um, and we were like, Oh man, you know, (laughs) totally, totally ruined it. But that's not the story. That was just a side side story. But what happened was after we recorded everything here, um, he wanted to do the vocals in Miami. So we flew there and we did, um, we did vocals there and we were there for two weeks and at the hit factory. Um, and me being a coffee drinker, I love coffee. I, I drink it all the time. These guys were giving me Cuban coffee. They called it cortaditos and they were like little shots of espresso with a lot of sugar and, and milk. Um, so every morning I tell them to bring me like five or 10 of them and just, put them behind me because they're like little shots. It's not like drinking a whole cup of American coffee. So I started drinking that stuff. And it's actually amazing coffee. And I'd be drinking it throughout the day and without realizing how, how addicting it was and how addicted I was to it. When I got back home, I, I was drinking so much coffee that I started to get insomnia <laughs> uh, because I was drinking so much. And that kind of led to a downward spiral, you know, the, I, I wasn't getting any sleep and I just basically had a, a caffeine overdose one time. And the first day we were mixing Julio, I got so sick. I was almost hallucinating because I, I hadn't slept for all these days and I had to just stop. And I was, I was home for five days, like an old man sitting in my rocking chair, <laughs> um, wrapped in a, um, in a blanket and just like freaking out <laughs> over, coffee uh overdose is that is that the story that's the story yeah people don't understand how powerful coffee can be especially like that but there you go i know guess what i'm drinking coffee as we speak (laughs) i'm not surprised i'm not surprised okay last question i don't remember when you were on you were one i think you were number five this is podcast number 171 and you you were one of the early ones so i didn't ask this question back then but I ask everybody a question now, a little off the subject a little bit. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Wow. You know, I remember you asked me that last time and I still have to scratch my head and see and think about that. Um, you know, uh, I, and I, I don't know if I answered it the same way, but uh, this always keeps coming back to me. and. Uh, I, every time the, the, the most, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, um, you know, it's about music and it, there's two different things. It's the business and then there's the music. Uh, the business side uh, is, is always something you have to be careful and you have to kind of pursue because you have to make a living out of it. But the one thing that I always do whenever I do a project is that as even if, as bad as it could be, whatever it is, I have to like it before I let it go. And I think 
you know, when you do a project, that's your business card. And, and I do it as best I can because that's the only way I get my next job is from my previous job. That's my thinking anyway. So um, I think business-wise is always trying to do the best I can. And by that meaning, you know, how make it feel good and, and, and just doing something that, that I'm proud of doing. Because if I think that way that I'm hoping whoever listens to it and goes, wow, this is pretty cool. I want this guy to work on my project. So I'm always thinking of my next gig from the gig that I'm doing now and, and try and do the best I can. Brilliant. Um, it, it's not a business thing. Well, it, it's more, you know, trying to, trying to, um, it's about the music, you know, the people, uh, you get a name and all that, but you know, you, the, the proof is in the pudding. If, if you don't, if you don't put out what somebody likes, then, uh, it doesn't matter what your name is. You know, they, they always go by what you, what you do, not, not who you are, I think. So it's, it's, it's trying to make the best you can. And, and about music still has to be about feel, not about, how quick you can do it and how much money you can make out of it. Mm. Brilliant. Somebody, somebody said that'll come. If, if, you know, the money will come, you just have to, uh, um, make it right. And then everything else will come. I love it. Excellent. Benny. Thanks for taking the time today to talk to me. Well, hopefully we can do another one and I can show you, uh, my new studio, my new space. Yeah. I'm really interested. I remember your house a little bit, and I remember your garage a little bit. The, the size of the room is is pretty big. It's, it's sixteen by uh, eighteen feet, so it's it's a good size. It's all it's about the same size as, or a little bigger than my last studio. Um, the the trick to this was treating it and making a making a sound acoustic because it's a rectangle. It's not like my other studios that had kind of um, weird shapes to it. So I don't know if people today, when they're, you know, when they walk in a room and they set up their Pro Tools, if that's something they think about or they'll just, you know, prop their, their speakers on there and they'll just listen. I go to, I'm going back to home studios now because I don't have a studio to record, like I said, with um, this project that I'm doing. And basically... You know, it's more it's more set for a composer that they they put their you know dual screens, they plop their speakers on there, and they go ahead and work. And then uh, an engineer, if there's you know there's such a thing as an engineer anymore, a mixer, they'll sit down, and you have to adjust to how a composer listens as opposed to how an engineer or a mixer would listen. Yeah, it's two completely different things, and I think that most people really don't think about that. They don't think about the sound or moving things around until it sounds better or, you know, none of that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, well, and that's what happened last week when I went to this guy when I started with Richard, where um, I brought my own speakers, but, you know, I had him move. He had his two screens. I got rid of one screen and just put one in the center because, you know, when you put things in between speakers, there's reflections and things. So it's all about hearing. It's and and it's not about watching your your files. It's about what you're listening for. And 
he was kind of surprised that I started doing that. And we spent an hour moving speakers around and moving stuff around. But, um, you know, that's, you know, if you can't hear properly, I don't know, I guess people, when they sit in a room, they just adjust to whatever they hear. But the question is what you're hearing. Is that true or not? You know, when you walk out, you, you make, um, you make a um, um, copy something for them to listen to when they hear it at home. Are they going to, you know, hear what they've been hearing, or are they going to hear something totally different? Yeah. You know, it is a process, just like everything else. And hopefully, you never know what you got until you start hearing. You can make it, I remember, do you have time or do uh, I have a story? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, um, well I was uh, at A&M, which is now Hanson Studios. Um, I was pretty much the last guy to to do a session in all of those rooms before they gutted it and make it what it is today. So Studio A, uh, I did uh, the last session in there. As soon as we were done, they got it and, and Shelly Akis took it over um, and redid that whole room and the same thing with B and C and D. Um, and in Studio B, which had API console, this great, great studio, uh, Carol King, the tapestry there, um, uh, Gladys Knight, I mean, Lionel Richie did uh, his, his um, solo records there when when the the new um, people came in and gutted it, um, they were the rockers with you know bringing in Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen and stuff. They spent Vincent Van Hoff was the designer, millions of dollars designing it, and as soon as they finished, um, uh, you know, with the design, you would think you're going to have an amazing studio. Rod Stewart was the first session. It sounded horrible hmm. because you never know when you design something uh, if it's going to, you know, sound good or not. And they literally had to stop the session and just not start from scratch, but tear down certain things to make it sound better. Yeah, I heard that too. After spending millions of dollars. Hopefully you won't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh-uh. To learn more about Benny, go to BennyFacconi.com. That's Benny, B-E-N-N-Y, Facconi, F-A-C-C-O-N-E. All one word, BennyFacconi.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <music>